Dog Safety Podcast with Vance and Bart. All right, so my favorite new segment, the one that is honestly what most people's whole show is, which is just about timely, topical bits. But for us, we tend to stay pretty high level and try not to be super timely about everything. You know, you you had kind of talked a little bit about why you wanted to do the fake news segment. What what was your thought there? Well, uh, I've been reading the new Tom Woods book. And in that book, you can go back and listen to his episodes and it really brought it home with me like, oh, well, we don't exactly do that kind of show, but to do that, to put a little segment in here that, that reminds you of what was going on at the time that this show was on, if you were to go back and listen, can be a, can be a useful tool in combating some of some of the revisionist stuff that people do after the after their policies fail or whatever they they tend to rewrite history even if it wasn't that long ago and in our minds we we forget or we it's hard to pin the time on the feeling or or whatever uh without that i i found it to be a, a very useful tool so i wanted to incorporate that into our show so it's just one one timely topic short little hey this is what happened and it's it's good context for listeners and for you and i because Mm -hmm. if they're just picking up on something and trying to understand what we're all about and maybe digging back in and re-listening or who knows i think the same could go for us when we're trying to go and understand the changes that have taken place even in just a short amount of time because the world changes really fast. It does. It does. So with that in mind, uh, let's kick off the So the Biden, the Biden, I'm going to read it like the headline says. Okay. The Biden administration has decided to fire missiles into targets in Yemen against the Iranian-backed, in parentheses, Houthis. Uh, sorry, self-defense missiles. <laughs> it says that. Self- okay. Fire self-defense missiles. Not the offensive missiles. Or self-defense missiles. So the only thing I can come up with is that I'm bad with geography and Yemen is somewhere on our maybe southern border. And okay. And so our self-defense missiles are attacking Yemen, one of the poorest countries in the world. Some say the poorest country in the world. I was waiting for you to say country because I was trying to figure out if it was maybe like a a town in Mexico. <laughs> Because geographically, 
I'm pretty sure it, Canada is on our north end. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if we're Saudi Arabia, Israel is our Canada, and Yemen is our Mexico. Is that right? Are we Saudi Arabia? Is that what's happened? <laughs> I mean, financially. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of ownership. So, again, we're firing self-defense missiles at a country on the other side of the globe. And I find it funny when they say the they say the Biden administration is firing the, the missiles into Yemen. It's a lot like uh, the idea that the, the little weasel that creates the law that's going to take away our guns, he's going to be the one coming to take them, you know, and it, completely forgetting that the cops are the ones that are going to come get them. It's not the, and it's the military during the cold war in Cuba, a lowly, I don't know his rank, but he was working the panel at the, for the nuclear missiles. And, uh, he decided not to fire, even though his orders were to fire the nuclear missiles. And he saved his country. He saved our country. He saved many other countries. That, uh, this man was a, a true hero, a true patriot for the world. I don't know whether, I don't really even know what happened to him. If he was killed by his own government for not firing it, even though he really shouldn't have. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to research that. But I was thinking about that when I'm thinking about the upper brass. I I, I kind of give, maybe I shouldn't, but I do give a pass to like the lower ranked military people a little bit more. Because if they didn't fire, a lot of them, if they didn't fire, they would just take them out and they would still lose everything. But the missile would still, still get fired, right? But the upper management could just not do it. I mean, these people are supposed to be these constitutional protectors of liberty in the United States. And they just do all these things that are the opposite of that because they can blame it on the person above them, the Biden administration. And uh, I understand that you work your whole life for this career and you could lose it by not firing. But how many missiles did you fire at innocent people to get to the rank that you are now, like you could have stopped killing innocent people so much earlier and been able to like have a different career maybe, or maybe they would have killed you. I, it's hard for me to put myself in their position, but somebody could not, somebody could just stop, you know, right. That's the way I feel about it. And do you think that the Yemenis, the the Houthis are going to now submit? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just pissed them off. Another generation of them. If you killed somebody's dad, right? You know, <laughs> now we've got trouble in that area for at least another generation. So if anybody has any resolutions there, please reach out because, uh, unlike the rest of our, our show, the, uh, fake news is is timely so 
If anyone wants to figure out peace in the Middle East, I don't think anyone's attempted that before. Or just figure out how to stop us from starting shit. Let them do it, whatever they want. I just don't want to fund it. Just shoot it. Yeah. If they don't take your money, they can't spend it on bombs. Yeah. And that's the fake news. So you got a topic you want to talk talk about, Bart? Like, uh, I do. Economic question, right? Or topic. yeah, and that's that's a topic that, while while timeless, tends to be in the conversation a lot in a timely way. So whenever you're listening to this, there's probably going to be a conversation about the economy. And right. it's funny that that happens too because. We'll get past something in economics. It'll we'll finally get to where like it's accepted, and then you wait ten years, and somebody comes at you again with a topic. It's probably something similar to what we're about to talk about, and they're like, "Look at this!" and it's it's the same fallacy that we had gotten over ten years ago. It's just this new name's doing it, and and you're calling it something else, right? And then so many people take it seriously again. And it makes us have to go back and break down why it's wrong, show examples and whatnot, at least in the, in, in the uh, intellectual side of economics. And that, I think, is the core piece I wanted to dig into is because I think so often we get caught up playing whack-a-mole with various different economic symptoms. Uh And we say, no, you're doing that wrong. And, oh, you're measuring that wrong. Or that's not actually economics or whatever that is. I think, (laughs) what? I'm not trying. uh, I just had a thought. I'm not trying to be mean, but there's just, there's a lot of people who go to college for economics that aren't ever going to be great thinkers of economics and they're all trying to write a paper. And I think that that is part of the reason why these old ideas come back to the front under new names so often is because they're not the brightest of the class, but they're all trying to get published for something. You know what I mean? Well, and that could be said for the majority of the sciences, because like you say, there are some very perverse incentives for people to come to some very particular conclusions. Mm -hmm. We've obviously seen that a lot in recent years with the pharmaceutical industry and what they have sponsored. But agriculture, big ag has been doing that for a very long time as well. Mm -hmm. So it, it stands to reason that a lot of these sciences are corrupt. But Mm -hmm. I think when we look outside of quote unquote economists Mm -hmm. and certainly outside of politicians, I think your average person assumes that the state manages the economy. Mm. And in some way they do when we talk about. Yes, they can negatively affect the economy. That's it. They cannot positively affect the economy, but they can negatively affect it. Correct. Well, and I think that's the type of debate that we sometimes get suckered into, especially when we're talking about like the Fed, we're Mm -hmm. talking about inflation and 
we get caught up in this argument of should they be printing money? Should they not be printing money? Should they be setting interest rates here? Should they not be? And we shouldn't be doing anything. They should. The economy should be its own thing. It should be. It's a living thing. Well, and even outside of that opinion, right? Like I share yeah. that opinion with you, right? But but even outside of that opinion, I think we're being backed into an argument that is incomplete because the economy is absolutely impacted by these things, right? Absolutely. Inflation and monetary pressure. We can show that. Interest rates. We all day show long. That, right? Yeah. But when people think about the economy, I think they're only thinking about maybe one or two types of capital. They're not thinking about other types of capital. Because when you think about, let's well, say, social capital. I don't like that one. <laughs> Why is because that? that's not it's not really a an economic thing that's that's a that's a government thing so social capital yes i i strongly disagree but maybe we're maybe, maybe we're, we're talking about two two different things i don't know but uh so i'm thinking about uh like the the blackrock with allowing uh, first dibs on loans from the Federal Reserve if, uh, you know, if you have a social credit score of whatever, whatever they called that credit, CCT or whatever score, CCB, I don't remember, it's three letters. but <laughs> And it was like, you just had to do woke shit on your commercials and stuff to get like points and so you I would see be eligible for the money. So that is not that far removed from what I'm talking about. If I if I can make it a little more apolitical so that everyone uh, kind of understands, I'll use a Rolex as an example. A Rolex as a as a good, as a product is made up of a certain number of components and the price of those components plus the price of the work that goes into making a watch, plus margin, plus marketing, whatever that is. Okay. All of those numbers come together from, you know, these, these resources plus human capital, which we talk about labor, these sorts of things. Those There's a lot that goes into it. You know, the, the restaurants that feed the employees that work at the mines and all that is all factored. It's all into that watch. It's, no one person could even think of all the things that go into that watch. Sure. And yeah. and all of those things get calculated into the price. And mm, I don't think so. That's not really how it works. I mean, you sell it for what you can sell it for, right? And you can either make a profit or make a loss. But it's really not. It's not going to be the price if, if nobody's going to buy it for that. It's not going to be the price. Like you could lose, you'd just lose money. Like you can only sell it for what you can sell it for. If, if it, you can sell it for half of what it costs you to make it, you just, you're, you're a shitty business. It's going to go under, but that's the price. I think we're, I think we're being a bit semantic here with the word price. What I mean is the price the cost, that they set. The no, cost. The, the price that they set, not, not the price that it sells for, not its, not its libertarian defined price, but. Okay. So the, what they want it to sell for. Right. I'm like, yeah, okay. 
Okay. And, and the, I, the expected cost of the product, yeah. I think... Projected, I think. I, I think, think they um, call that projected price, right? Well, when it's on, a theoretical price before no, it's, they actually it's, got the, the market. The simple, the simple term would be asking price. Is that what they say? Okay. Asking price. So you hear that a lot with real estate, of course, because real estate's right. very fluid, negotiable, right. that sort of thing. People don't really talk about that when with like small. So they factor in their profit and what they need profit wise and they, they, they have an asking price. Right. And the reason I, I won't follow you down the what the actual price is is because ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people recognize asking price as price. And while I agree with you, we're we're talking about asking price. Yeah, but that, I mean that is a huge fallacy in most economic theory. Like that's one of the biggest things is like people confuse price with asking price or they think price is set by the cost of making something and, and the profit they want and all that. And it's not. And, and, and that's where a lot of the mistakes are made and bad mistakes are made in, in economics and, and government, you know, uh, interventions are, are believed to make, good good things happen and whatnot i mean if it, if that was the case then then rent control would work you know what i mean like if the price if, if the price was actually the price like the asking price then rent control would be a good thing and actually work but it doesn't but that that's my point like we're not talking yeah. anything about price we're talking about asking price All right. and okay. the influences in the asking price. then we need to be very clear about that because we don't want to confuse the people who don't know that yet so sure uh yeah so to be specific the asking price is generally calculated uh based on kind of backing out what you're saying which is like what they think they can get for it Mm -hmm. and part of the things that are in that calculation are not things that are measured by the majority of economists and to go all the way kind of back to what you were saying with your BlackRock example, I'm talking about social capital. So if if I set an asking price on a watch at $10,000, mm-hmm. and I could have easily set it at three and still made quite a profit, one might wonder what you're budgeting into that asking price. And it's something that a lot of people would think contradicts supply and demand but it's actually still very much it falls right it still falls lockstep it's yeah it's still perfectly compatible with supply and demand and that's why i didn't want to get caught up so much on price because this is the this is the crux of of it in that let's say that based on their normal calculations that that they would generally set an asking price of three thousand mm-hmm if they found that culturally and socially there are these milestones where you can actually set something to cost quite a bit higher, mm-hmm. and because of that, people will use that as cachet or social capital, mm-hmm. then they've found a way of calculating that social capital into that asking price. 
Right. So if we're talking about watches, Rolex and whatnot, when you look at that and you say, oh, that's ridiculous, but you, you can say, you can say that's ridiculous all day long, but because they ask so much more than what it's, than the materials that go into it, they can get the best jewelers. They can hire the, the best jewelers to get in there and they do hands on work and they, they're, that company can be like, hey, no matter the cost, make this the baddest watch ever. You know what I mean? And they're yes, they're selling it for so much more than what it's going to cost them. So they have that to do. So you are getting something that nobody else, like you're getting something beyond what a watch is. I mean, it's it's done by a jewel, an artist, right? And so there is something to the product. It's not just a watch that's charged. They charge more for, you know what I mean? It's, it's more than that. Uh, but you're right. At some point you have a piece of art and you want it to be rare. The people who buy that piece of art are buying it for it's how rare it is. So you do end up there's, it becomes part of the business model to make sure that you, you charge an amount that, Makes it rare. Well, your neighbor's not going to have the same one or, or whatever. So you're right. But there's a lot that goes into that. It's not just um, charging more. It's, there's all these, I guess you would well, call them social effects to it. But right. It's, it's social capital. There's, I, think, I guess you could, yeah. I guess. This is the, this is the fallacy like that I'm, I want to make sure that we sort of set as the foundation for asking the bigger question because like I say, a lot of folks will point to this as a contradiction to the law of demand, which supply demand, very simple, but it's not in fact a contradiction to the law of demand because when you raise the price, people on its face say, okay, you're just raising the price. You're not actually changing or adding value to it. Therefore the law of demand it is contradicted. But in fact, you raising the price, Makes you are you sell inherently less of, sell well, less of them. Well, you're <laughs> it's not just that. It's you are inherently adding something that others perceive as value in social capital because if I wear a $50,000 watch, that affords me and maybe this is not even true. Maybe this is a misconception, but Either way, in my mind as a human, I perceive that as social capital that I'm I'm buying that can give me some sort of sway or some sort of reputation or something like that. And I yeah. would be more apt to buy it. And everybody feels different about the way that they, everything, sure. a car, you buy a Lamborghini and you buy a Ford pickup truck, you're buying a car. It's a lot of economists look at that as a car. Right. They're both cars. And it's not the same thing. You're you're buying this for this reason. You're buying this for this reason. And to the opposite per that Lamborghini might not be worth two dollars to the guy who needs the truck. But to the guy who wants the Lamborghini, it is worth what it's it is. It's to that person, to every person to one guy who buys a Lamborghini and to the next guy that buys a Lamborghini, it might be two completely different reasons. Precisely. And, and that's why when we're always kind of popping in the, you know, redefining terms and we're not talking about this and we're talking about that. And 
here's this fallacy. I think we're chasing a bunch of symptoms when in reality the larger problem is that when we talk about the economy, we're talking about something that's far more comprehensive than what your government or even academics generally use to calculate that. Because if we talk about, quote unquote, Um, the economy. Unfortunately, most studies of economics do not factor in humanity into the the equation. (coughs) Austrian economics is primarily focused on humanity as the number one driver of the economy, the 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 act of being a human and making individual decisions. Uh, and Chicago School does does emphasize it some, and most others don't even factor it in at all. Um, and I think that's a huge problem because now we're looking at numbers and fallacies and how come this equation doesn't work because you forgot the biggest the biggest thing to the equation is it's a human buying the product right with a life so, right so we keep we keep pushing back because when, when again to, to kind of talk about how this is both timeless and timely at any given time when the economy is referenced whether that be through politicians whether that be in media and i don't even mean the sort of corporate controlled state media i I mean the majority of like true like mainstream media the majority of media when people are talking about the economy they're generally talking about one or two segments of it (laughs) like and your layman thinks it's the stock market for real which is and this is where i think it matters less about where we disagree and more about where we can agree because you and I, for example, could look at, you know, the federal reserve or anything else and, and say, here's how much control they should have, which is zero. But those are our opinions and we can get there and we can back that up. But before we even talk about to what extent they can or should control something, Mm -hmm. we should talk about what it is that we're controlling. And If they only control some portion of it, but that still heavily affects every other part of it, then we're starting from bad data from day one. Right. And this is another point that I like to make is like when we talked about price earlier, uh, the consumer sets the price and any distortion from that is, is a distortion on humanity. It's the, you start distorting prices and manipulating prices, you're manipulating human lives because the economy is your life, your livelihood, your savings, your retirement, your jug of milk that you buy for your kid every day. That's the economy. It's not it's not the stock market. It is everything around you. Uh, it's it's the things that you do. It's not even things that you buy. If you if you decide to, you know, 
take your trash out or recycle and like all these things that burn your trash instead of take your trash to the dump. Like these are all things that affect where resources are go to and resources are the economy. Money is not the economy. Money is the exchange <laughs> of the resources, the medium of exchange. And what happens is the federal reserve manipulates the media, uh, exchange to benefit the their friends and their upper rich people and they call it bailouts and whatnot and uh and all it does is make us poorer for the same work and the same things that we do and uh for the people who aren't producing anything all day that are just rich and connected why do you think I love to, when I talk about the economy and manipulation of the economy, I, I tell, why are the highest number of millionaires around Washington, D.C.? The largest concentration of millionaires. Why are they there? There's nothing being built there. There's no products. There's nothing better in the world coming out of there. It's because they suck so much wealth out of the productive side of America and then they divvy it out to their buddies that are connected. They happen to typically live around Washington, D.C. You don't think it's because they have such high-quality public education and send the youth to go learn better and ultimately earn better? Well, wouldn't they have to produce something? They're not producing anything. It depends on who's buying. They're not producing anything. They're there. There's nothing coming out of Washington, D.C. They don't have like a... They're not known for producing anything. There's no computer chips being made there. There's no tech industry. There's well, no factories. Well, well, I might agree with the challenges around the corruption. I think that's a dangerous kind of measurement because would you say the same thing if Washington, D.C. was full of OnlyFans models? That would be producing something. It's entertainment. You're producing entertainment. Yeah, there's 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 a value to that, obviously, because somebody thinks that it's worth whatever amount of money that they're they're giving out. And, and while that's obviously not the case, yeah, I mean, I I wish I could get Nancy Pelosi's OnlyFans. I'd be on that right now, right now. It's a trap, and there's no comfort in it. 